All right, you guys, the plan is to finish Revelation 5. That's the plan. And so remember uh, what we're dealing with here in this text. The Apostle John is given in the second visionary cycle of seven cycles. He's given a glimpse of the throne of God. But it's not like a stationary vision. It's a vision that is conveying thousands of years from the perspective of God. And we see that God is sovereign over all of creation in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we're seeing that the Lord is sovereign in redemption. From the very first person who was ever saved, we have reason to think that that was probably Adam in the garden because in Genesis 3.15, God preaches the gospel to him. It's the proto-evangel, it's called. And then he, he kills an animal to make a covering for him. So from the very first person that was saved, which is probably Adam, to the very last person that will, that will ever be saved, God has been sovereign over redemption. And here in chapter 5 especially, the la- especially in the latter portion of the chapter, which we're going to be considering tonight, the Lamb, Christ Jesus, is being celebrated for and worshipped for his role in redemption in every salvation ever. And it's the height and the culmination of the vision that he's been given here in this secondary, in the second visionary cycle, which also then means that this saving act of the Lamb is also the height of God's redemptive purposes and the primary source of our comfort in this age. So let's read the chapter, and then we'll pray, and we'll deal with the latter half of the text. So Revelation chapter 5, you can follow along if you like, or you can just listen to it um, as well. There's nothing wrong with just listening to the word read. That is what the church had to do for thousands of years before we had such access to Bibles. It's good that we have access to Bibles now, but there's nothing wrong with just listening. The word of the Lord. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you and thank you for preserving this scene for us, for giving this vision to John, 
so that it might be a source of encouragement for your church throughout the ages. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding and that you would help us to think rightly about your word and to then think rightly about you so that we may increase in our trust of you, our belief in you, that our faith may be fully resting in Christ, who is our righteousness. To you be all glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, have you ever given much thought to worship before? I mean, is it is it just something that happens? Or do you realize that when you come to church that it's, it's something that's planned out? Uh, is it... Is it just something that takes place when the church gathers, or is it different when the church compared to when the church gathers compared to when you're by yourself and you're worshiping by yourself? Does it matter what takes place when you worship? Well, you know, of course, there are most cities there are dozens of churches, dozens of Protestant churches uh, within the same, you know, even denomination, even. And would it be right to just go to whichever one has the worship that you like? You know, because it seems pretty clear that many churches design worship to be that way. They set it up to attract people. There's specific programs that they have, the kind of music, the atmosphere of the church, the kinds of people that are there. Those choices influence many who seek to gather with the church. But they all miss the point of who is worship to be, of who worship is to be directed to, who worship is for. Now, don't misunderstand me here. We are certainly impacted by worship, uh, by worshiping. That is especially the case for the Christian, the one who has faith in the Lord, because that gift of faith from the Lord is then also the, the vehicle by which the means of grace in worship are made effective in our lives, effective towards sanctifying us. So worship definitely does something to us because we have been given faith, and since we have faith, these means of grace, which are the preaching of God's word, singing, praying, they, they, in, they contribute to our sanctification. They contribute to our growth in Christ. And we're impacted by worship through the life-giving spirit that dwells within us. But that's how you know that true biblical worship is impacting you because it's increasing your desires for the Lord and for holiness. It's not about like a feeling that you get. It's not about being overcome with emotion, although emotions are certainly engaged. We see that in our text even. Remember at one point, John is weeping, and then all of creation in three sets is worshiping and praise. There's emotion in that, certainly. But worship isn't about making us feel good. It's not about having like butterflies in your stomach. Now, you see, even though worship certainly does impact us, Worship isn't actually about us. It's not about getting what we want. It's not about making us feel a certain way. It's about God, actually. It's about God, who he is, and what he has done. Remember the old catechism question, what is man's chief end? Said modernly, what is humanity's purpose in life? And the answer that the old divines gave was that it's that our chief end is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. We are to live our lives happily for all of God's glory. And I would submit to you that worship is integral to this. That apart from, if you cut worship of God out of your life, there's, it would be impossible for you to enjoy God and glorify him forever. He is exalted by his creation for who he is and what he has done. And that's why so many people in our world are left 
you know, broken and unsatisfied. Even when they have the world's riches, things that we think that we might like, that we would make good use of. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon to hear about celebrities who end up committing suicide. And we often think, like, why would they do that? Because from our perspective, they seem to have everything that we might want, the, the wealth, the fame, the comfort, those things of the world, and yet they're still left wanting. And it's because they're worshiping something or someone other than what they were created to worship. You can think of this, really. If you've ever done a job around the house, maybe like helping a grandparent or your mom or dad, and then you would know that having the right tool makes the job a breeze. But if you have the wrong tool, then doing that exact same job is frustrating, it's annoying, you probably hate that you're having to do it. Um, so if I told you, for example, that I framed out a fence and I needed you to hang all the, the boards, the fence boards onto the frame, then I give you nails and a screwdriver rather than nails and a hammer, you would immediately know how important having the right tool is. I mean, you could probably kind of do it with a screwdriver and nails. It would take you a super long time. You'd probably mess your hands all up. The nails wouldn't be in the whole way. It would be a pretty bad job. But that's what it's like for a person to have their chief end be something other than glorifying God and enjoying him forever. They're like a tool that's being misused. And that's what you have happening when a person goes to worship and believes that they are the consumer of worship and not God. We offer worship to God. We don't offer worship to ourselves. And so God is the consumer of our worship. And that's what we see here in our text as we close out this chapter. Worship is directed at him on the throne. Not, but not only him on the throne, also to the lamb who is as slain, the worthy one who could take the scroll and open it and tell others of its contents. That's verse 7 in Revelation 5. I talked about it last week. You might remember that this whole scene here, this, this section of the lamb taking the, the scroll from the father who's on the throne, lines right up with Daniel chapter 7, where the vision of the Son of Man, Jesus, who comes up to the Ancient of Days, which is the father. And the father gives this one dominion and authority and power. All the nations are his. And the text in Revelation is communicating that very same thing. Jesus, the God-man, is uniquely able and worthy to open this scroll. And he's been faithful to the covenant, and he has earned this right to be the king on the throne, the scroll that reveals God's plan of redemption unto the world. Uh, Jesus already had this authority and right as God, of course. We talked about that before. But this is his receiving honor and glory as the God-man, the true God and true man in one person. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him because of his faithfulness to keep the Mosaic covenant and then to die upon the cross to redeem the elect, in the, which is for the fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. And this is the response now that we see playing out in heaven because of that. And so verse 8, verse 8, according to John, when the lamb has taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they're holding like these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So there's a number of important things here. For one, the lamb possesses the same glory and authority as does the one sitting on the throne. When heaven worships the lamb, they're worshiping God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. The lamb's majesty and glory are clearly equal to that of the one seated on the throne. Otherwise, these four living creatures and the 24 elders 
that are, if you remember, they're representative of the church and the old covenant and the new covenant, they would be in sin, right? If they were worshiping the lamb and the lamb wasn't God, they're falling prostrate before the lamb. This is imagery associated with worship. Whenever we see in scripture a holy angel engaging people and the people attempt to worship it, the angel stops them, doesn't it? It happens twice at the end of John's apocalypse. We'll get there eventually. Colossians 2 warns us not to worship angels. And so if the lamb was not God, then the four living creatures and the elders would be all be in sin. And the lamb itself would be also for receiving worship that doesn't belong to him. And imagine, you know, all of this would be going down right before the throne, right in front of the father. It just it simply wouldn't happen. The lamb, then we are can be certain, possesses the same glory and authority as the father. No mere creature could ever possess such glory. It's nothing less than the glory of God. The Father and the Son are equally God. They're equally divine. There's not One's not subordinate to another eternally or anything like that. They are equally God. They're of the same usia, the same substance. We've talked about that before. Now, the elders who represent the redeemed and the living creatures who represent creation, they all fall before the Lamb and worship Him. And this also points to the fact that the glory of Christ and his worthiness is equal to that of the fathers because the hosts of heaven would never bow before any creature or, or any other created thing. They're all on that same plane, right? We understand this, I, I hope, that the distance between myself or let's say the distance between like you and an angel is super close in comparison to the distance between like an angel and God or you and God or the distance between like you and a worm is super close in comparison to the distance between you and God or even an angel and a worm is super close in comparison to the distance between the angel and God because God is totally different than his creation. He's the only unique being like that. There's only one God. And so granted, this bear is repeating. This isn't a literal description of what John is seeing. We've said this before a number of times throughout Revelation already. I'll probably continue to say it. He's seeing something, something greater than what he's actually able to communicate. And what he is communicating is he's describing to us the theological realities of what's happening. Because for one, I mean, it would not be possible for these four living creatures and these 24 elders to all be holding and playing a harp while at the same time holding full bowls of incense and then to lie down and to keep playing the harp and to keep holding the bowls of incense. Rather, what he's doing is he's communicating something to us about the worship that is taking place. So later on in the book of Revelation, we'll read that prayers of the saints rise to heaven. And they're said to be collected in these bowls. And that is a, um, not a license or something like that to use incense in our worship, like they used to in the Old Covenant. But what it's doing is it's taking a common element of worship in the Old Covenant and explaining how it is that we would understand then prayer to God. Our prayers aren't wasted on Yahweh. You might think that, oh, just burning some incense is a, is a waste of, Fires a waste of resources. It's not a waste. And neither are prayers a waste. We talked a little bit about prayer last week. But the point here is that we should know that 
the prayers of the saints are like a sweet aroma to Yahweh. Praying matters. It's an element of worship. God likes our prayers. He wants us to pray. That's why part of the part of the reason why in our small groups we try to encourage you guys to think about reasons to pray and then to encourage you to pray for each other throughout the week. Because worship is consistent with prayer. Prayer is a part of, of worship. And it's something that God would want for us to do. They're like a sweet aroma to him. In Revelation 6, 9 to 11 and 8, 4, the saints pray for the vindication of martyred, brother, uh, martyred believers. They cry out for judgment upon the ungodly. The fact that these prayers ascend to God's throne and to the Lamb remind us that the opening of this scroll is somehow connected to the vindication of those saints who die for God. The opening of this scroll validates, in other words, their martyrdom. The, the judgments yet to come and, the, and containing the scroll will, in part, bring about the vindication of the saints. And of course it does, right? Because the Lamb has died for them. Uh, with, the, with the elders holding harps in their hands and singing, the scene in heaven is suddenly reminiscent of the Levitical priests who were commissioned to lead people in Israel in the praise of Yahweh. It's one of those parts in Scripture that if you're reading it, you may be inclined to be like bogged down in it. It's First Chronicles 24 and 25. And in chapter 24, King David commissions the priests to do specific jobs. And then in chapter 25, he organizes the groups of, of musicians, people who will be able to sing or play musical instruments and offer worship to the Lord. And so he organizes them. And the whole section in chapter 5 is filled with repetitive statements as we read about different lots that fell to different households of priests for making music. It's thirty-one. chapter 25 in First Chronicles is 31 verses of hard-to-pronounce names and similar sentences telling us the number of those who would make up the team of musicians. Again, it's one of those types of texts that we're probably inclined to get bogged down in. But can you guess how many subgroups were formed over those 31 verses in First, in first Corinthians um, chapter 25? Well, it's 24. The same number of the amount of elders that we have here that are playing harps and that are worshiping and singing. So clearly, we're meant to understand that there is worship going on here. The Lamb is worthy of worship. And first, we see this group that is closer to the throne engaging in worship. And then if it wasn't clear enough, they engage in worship through a song. And they sang a new song, we read. It's not that they fell down prostrate, and then after that, the song begins. That's not the idea contained in the tense of the words here. What's happening here is like an instantaneous expression of worship for the lamb as slain standing. It just erupts as soon as the lamb takes the scroll. It's like, boom, the lamb takes the scroll and boom, here comes now this worship begins by these people who are surrounding the throne and then extends out from there. He is the one, the only one that could do it. And all of redemptive history was anticipating this act of the Lord. And when it happens, just this worship explodes right onto the scene. And so they sing. We're told they sing a new song. Not new in the sense that this is some new kind of salvation that is being offered, but what's new is that the specifics are given. And we see that in verse 9, but it's not a totally new song as if this salvation was not known before. It's just the specific details that are specifically new here. This charge to sing a new song is found seven times in the Old Testament, 
But there are two passages that are that especially stand out in light of this. So if you want to keep your finger here and turn back to the Psalms, you can do that. We're going to look at two sections of the Psalms. It's just so you could see this continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you wanted to even, if you wanted to jot down on the, you know, in with a pen on the side of your Bible next to Psalm, we'll start at Psalm 98, verse 1. If you want to jot down Revelation 5 right there, you're, you could do that because then the next time you read through it, you'll think, oh yeah, this is matches up with what has said in Revelation 5. So this is Psalm 98, 1 through 3. Notice what it says. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness in the house of Israel. And the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like what is sung by the elders and the four living creatures? Many of the same elements are, are there. But the differences lay with the specifics of the Savior. Now it's he's slain. And by your blood, a people are ransomed for, uh, for God. Or even verse 10, now we see that the elect are a kingdom of priests to God and that we reign on earth with him. But the rest of the things mentioned here in Revelation 5 line up quite well with Revelation 98. Or turn over to Psalm 96. Again, uh, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all of the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. So again, it's very similar to what we have in Revelation 5. You can go back to Revelation now. The same observations that we made with 98, we can say about 96. That the, the thing that is really lacking in those passages is the specifics about what the Son of God would do in ransoming his own self up and then making those that he ransoms himself up for a kingdom of priests. And notice too, that in the saying of this song, we're told something about the atonement. We're, we're told something about the scope of the atonement that Jesus made for people. Because you ransomed people, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Not every person in every tribe, language, people, and nation, but from. There's a limit to it. At the same time, there's a vastness to it because it's people out of every tribe, nation, and people in tongue, but it's people from out of that. And so we've, God is Christ, and Christ is being worshipped for these very things. So notice that first song, 9 through 10. It says, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, a new song is sung as an expression of praise to God for granting his people victory over their enemies. Given the worthiness, the, the value, and the importance of the lamb who was slain, the new song commemorates Christ's victory over sin and death and the inauguration of the new creation. We need to understand that the new creation is, is being ushered in by Christ. And it happens in two stages, just like Christ's coming, right? And remember what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5? 
that when we are saved and here in time, even though we retain for a time this nature that has fallen in Adam, I mean, people who are Christians still sin, right? So we still have to contend with this fallen nature. But what does the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.17 about the person who receives Christ and they're now in Christ? He calls them a what? A new creation. They're a new creation, even now. That if you are saved now, you are properly called a new creation. Now, you're still struggling with sin, and the, your glorification hasn't happened yet. But when Christ comes again, you'll have your glorified body. So, so just like with Jesus coming, he came once, he's going to come again. The new creation comes in two stages as well, too. It was inaugurated his first coming. It'll be finished or consummated at his second coming. More on that in just a moment. <clears throat> the words of this hymn uh, express this reality that we are, um, that this new creation has begun. Jesus has died for his chosen ones, and in doing so, he's purchased a people from every tribe, nation, language, and uh, every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so the, the king is in, is he invested with an everlasting kingdom which extends to the earth or the ends of the earth and encompasses his elect from every nation. And because Jesus has conquered death in the grave, all of his people participate in his kingdom rule by virtue of the new creation, specifically the new birth in Christ, which John will later call the first resurrection. We'll see that when we get further on into Revelation. He talks about people having a first resurrection. All those who are Christ's are said to reign with him because death has no hold on them. The beast may kill them, but they will reign with Christ nevertheless. And when Christ comes back at the end of the age and the new creation is consummated, God's people will, will, will rule with him indeed upon the renewed heaven and the renewed earth throughout this whole age to come. And we'll get more into the beast here very soon, what the beast is in Revelation in just a couple of chapters. But this, this worship of Jesus isn't contained to just right around the throne. It starts there, but it grows and it expands. When the new song of redemption is sung, the whole of heaven begins to worship the Lamb. According to John, uh, Revelation 5.11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So William Hendrickson notes that these are not the cherubim or the four living creatures around the throne in this group. Uh, Beale, G.K. Beale, believes them to be angels and legions of heaven who return to earth with Christ on the day of judgment. Uh, but before the dreadful day of judgment, they worship the Lamb along with the elders and the living creatures. Well, regardless of who these angels are specifically, what class of angels they are, um, we are to be astounded by the amount of them. We have no way of knowing exactly how many angels there actually are. But at least in this vision that John is being given, there's too many for him to count. The, the, the vision is telling us that all of heaven is worshiping Jesus. In other words, even those beings which are, which are spiritual by nature give worship to Jesus. Even these beings that haven't been atoned for by Jesus are still worshiping him for his act of atonement for the elect. But notice... The church is closer to Christ in the throne, aren't they? These angels aren't said to be reigning with Christ. It's amazing how kind and how loving God is towards those who are united to Christ. Angels are even said to be ministering spirits to us. And yet, 
Fallen man often worships them rather than the creator that even the angels worship. And so look at what they say. This is their addition to that song, or it's another new song. And they say with a loud voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So seven excellencies about the Lamb who was slain are given. He is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. The use of seven, again, you know, reminding us of the fullness and the worth of Christ and the undivided worship that he is supposed to have. We're not to, as Christians, we're not to just give part of our worship to Christ, right? We're, we, we would be wrong if we said, I'm going to give part of my worship to Christ, but I'm going to save part of myself to give worship to, you know, this other thing over here, because I really like this other thing or this, this person or this ideal. No, no the, the worship that we're supposed to be that's supposed to be given to Christ as is exemplified by the angels here. It's supposed to be complete, undivided worship. That is what he is worthy for. And that also at the same time, that worshiping the Lamb then is not dividing up worship worship between the Godhead. It's simply giving worship to God. If we are if you're worshiping Jesus, it's not like you're somehow not worshiping the Father or the Spirit. It's all it's all it's complete. It's together. And then lastly, this wonderful scene points ahead to the great and glorious day yet to come. There's a third hymn to be sung. As the chapter and its focus upon the Lamb comes to a close, John's vision of the throne is extended from the present to the time of the end, when the universal, when universal acclaim is offered to Christ by a redeemed creation at the end of the age, at his second coming, in other words. Revelation 5, 13-14. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, John not only sees the worship of the Lamb in the present upon his reception in heaven as the exalted Savior, which, remember when this book was written, is 90 AD, that actually would have been about... 60 years in the past, actually, right? When Jesus ascended to heaven in his exalted, glorified state, 40 days after his resurrection, close to 30 AD. So that, that first vision where he's seen where the lamb is taking the scroll, that's what happened when Jesus went into heaven, into the throne room as the exalted, glorified Savior. So it's a little bit past from John's perspective. But now he sees to the end of the age. He sees the worship of the Lamb by a redeemed creation, which takes place at the end of time. It's everything and everyone. That's what's being told here to us. Where it says that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. In other words, just being as complete as you possibly could be. Everything that can worship is worshiping Jesus. Everything and everyone. That's the language. Everyone, I suppose, except for those who are in the lake of fire for their refusal to believe in Christ and their love for sin. And so the vision of the heavenly throne ends with all of creation and all of God's redeemed, worshiping the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. When Daniel's vision was sealed, when Ezekiel and Isaiah saw the throne, their visions were incomplete because they did not see the Lamb who was slain. When the new songs and the Psalms were 
son concerning salvation, they were incomplete because they did not see the specifics of the covenant of grace and the accomplishments of Christ. And so it is only after Christ comes, only after he died for our sin, only after he was raised for our justification, that we can fully understand the meaning of the new song. For the new song centers upon what God has done in Christ to free us from our sins, to make us a kingdom of priests, and to ensure that one day we will roll with Christ upon a redeemed earth. Think of how encouraging this message of Revelation 4 and 5 must have been to saints living in situations like those described in Revelation 2 and 3. And think of how helpful this information will be for saints who live and endure through the things mentioned in the coming chapters. And so if it's at all possible over the next coming months, I, w- I would love it. We'll probably revisit that song we sang a number of times or, um, in future sermons on Wednesdays about, the, about him being worthy to open the scroll. Because it's these very truths that are a source of hope and encouragement for the church as we live in this age. In the midst of our earthly struggles, friends, let's always keep John's vision before our eyes knowing that even as God's will is being done in heaven, one day it will be done upon the earth. And until it is, we are privileged even now to add our voices to those of the multitude of heaven. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we ask that you would impress upon us a greater desire to worship you, Lord, seeing how that is the the height of your plan of redemption, that Christ would be worshipped for who he is and what it is that, that he's done. And we are privileged, we know, to even now enter into worship of you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to do everything unto your glory, and that if things arise in our life that won't give you glory, that we pray then you would give us wisdom to turn away from those things and instead to pursue what is good and honoring to you. We praise you and thank you for the gospel. There is no greater story, no greater plan, Lord, and we know that it is only because of your the reconciliation offered to us and the atonement made by Christ because of your loving kindness towards us that we can be saved. Let us have full confidence and hope in that, Lord, and not in ourselves at all. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, guys. Any uh. Anything we could try to clear up? Questions? We're going to get into Revelation 6, not next week, but the following week, because next week we're having that pool party. But Revelation 6, I believe, is technically part of this still um, second visionary cycle, but it changes now to, well, you'll see, the, what these seals are and the judgments that are contained therein. But any questions about what we talked about tonight? Good, good.